The following audio is a sermon from the season of Advent. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your promise in the Old Testament, the promise of your son that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. And we thank you that you fulfilled that promise. Even though it took thousands of years of waiting and anticipation, you fulfilled that in, uh, in a flesh and blood way with, the, with your son, Jesus Christ, born a baby. And Father, right now we, we tune our hearts to meditate on that. We tune our hearts to think about that, to look at that. And Father, we also, it, it's such a special season because just like you promised you would come the first time and you did. We know you are truthful. You've also promised to send your son a second time. And we know that you are going to do that as well. So would you uh, enable us to hear your word and to sit under your word and to be shaped by your word with uh, thankfulness for your first coming, but with an anticipation and a longing for your second coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Emmanuel, God with us. Come and fix this broken earth, fix our broken hearts, fix our broken life. Consummate your kingdom on this earth. Would you do that? And Father, right now, as we live between the time, would you anoint my mind and think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would you enable us to hear your word spoken over lips of clay this morning that I am a fallible man and I make mistakes? But would you use your word to speak infallible truth? that shapes us, that changes us right where we are. Would you do that for your glory and for our joy this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we usually do at Sacred Cities, we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, But right now we like to pause and we like to come out of that. We like to celebrate the season of Advent. Uh, And just let everyone know, the first of the year we are starting uh, a new book of the Bible. We're going through 1 Corinthians. I'm really excited about it. It's really Paul's most aggressive letter written to a completely jacked up church, okay? And uh, we get to see what Paul says to them, how Paul admonishes them, how he points them back to Jesus. And I think it's one of the letters of, of the New Testament that most that resonates with us really clear in our culture, in our day and age. Um, it really speaks to us. So I'm really stoked for it. I'm really, really excited. So that's coming the first of the year. You, hopefully you can look forward to it as well. Um, I'm going to be buying some commentaries and such that we can sell at the bookstore so you can follow along with us. It's going to be a great study. But right now, it's Advent. And as we celebrate Advent, we like to take time to really focus in on Jesus, who he is, what did he come to do. And this year, we are following, um, it's called the Revised Common Lectionary for our scripture readings. Uh, A lot of you are like, why, you know, if you grew up in kind of contemporary church. Why are they reading so much Bible? Why are they, you know, four different texts of scripture? What's going on? Well, what it does, the the revised common lectionary, that what it means is that we're studying the same text. We just had the same text read in our gathering this morning. Um, and over the next four, well, two more weeks of Advent as the majority of the mainline denominations across the world, they're all using that same text this morning. So each week we'll be reading four separate texts that all refer to Jesus in some way. Two from the Old and two from the New Testament. Then uh, what we're doing is I will choose each week uh, one of those texts to kind of focus in on and preach from. And this week 
We're going to be studying Psalm 72. So if you've got your Bible or your app, open it up. Psalm 72, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. We're going to sit down in that and study it together. I'm going to go ahead and open up to it. Psalm 72. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, the Psalms are a really interesting book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, um, I would actually encourage you to, to familiarize yourself in the Psalms. The Psalms are basically uh, a collection of prayers. I've heard a lot of people, like, they come to faith, they're new believers here. Justin, I don't know how to pray. Well, guess what? God gave us a whole book of the Bible of prayers that could teach you how to pray. So read Psalms. It's a collection of great prayers, but it's more than that. It's also a collection of laments. What's a lament? A lament um, could we ca- characterize about 60% of your uh, Facebook posts as laments? Possibly, possibly a lament is a longing, a longing of the soul of, of things are not going well. And my life is in a really tough time and I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. A lot of the Psalms are laments. I think it's actually 60% of the Psalms are laments. There's songs in the Psalms, Right. People of Israel used to sing these. They used to sing them aloud. They would, this is how they memorized them. They didn't have a, the book of the Psalms to go to and, and to read, open up to Psalm 119. They would actually memorize them and sing them to their children. That's how they taught them. How to, they catechized their kids, how they taught them the word of the Lord. And Psalm 72 is a unique psalm in that it's called a royal psalm. This psalm was used at the coronation ceremony for kings in Israel. So when a new king would take the throne, they would read this song aloud. He would take the throne, this psalm would be read aloud, and then also if there was any trouble in Israel, and trouble during his reign, and and the people would pray for the king, they would pray this psalm. They knew this psalm by heart, and they would pray for the king by quoting these words that we're going to be reading today, and we've already read once. More than likely, most commentators believe that this is a psalm of David, written for the coronation of his son, Solomon, to the throne of Israel. And in Psalm 72, like all the royal psalms, you're going to hear this ache. You're going to hear this ache or this internal longing for a good king. Now, I use the word good, and that's kind of a throwaway term, but I want you to see what we're really talking about. Look at 72, verse 1. When you're there, say there. Remember, this is upon his coronation. He's taking the throne. And this is what the people are praying to God for the king. And this is what their people are praying uh, in their homes when they're praying for the king. This is what they're saying. Here, let's read verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God. Right? Everybody wants a just king. One who who, who the, the scales are balanced equitably, right? We want a just king. Keep reading. And your righteousness, we want him to do right, God, to the royal son, right? People are wanting a king that's just and right. Keep reading. May he judge your people with righteousness, right? If you, if you take something before the king, you don't want the king to just choose based on how he feels that day. Uh, I like this guy's outfit. We'll go with him. Right? You want a, a, a king who, who, who righteousness and justice mean something. And look, and you're poor with justice. See, they pray that this king would bring justice to the poor. And the next line, prosperity to the people. That he would bring deliverance to the children of the needy. And that he would crush their oppressors. That the people want a king who is just. 
They want a king who feels compassion for the weak and for the powerless, but they also want a king who is powerful and strong, one who can strike down any oppressive opponents, right? Anybody comes against the kingdom, they want to be squashed. Anyone that tries to harm them, they want destroyed. This is the kind of king that the people want Solomon to be. Be a good king, Solomon. Be a right king. Be a just king. Be a king that, 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 that knows and understands the poor and fights for them. They ache and they pray for a good king. Now, can I ask you this morning? Isn't this the king that we all want? Isn't this what we want our president to be? Isn't this how we want to be ruled by God? Someone who's strong and who can crush the people that come against us, but at the same time can resonate with the weak and can, can understand the plight of the poor and can stand up and be just and righteous. Don't we all somewhere down deep desired, desire to be governed by a good and perfect king? Now, I'll tell you, all of my kids' favorite stories... All of my kids' favorite stories involve kings, queens, princes, and princesses. Listen, my daughter has never looked at me and said, Daddy, please tell me one of them democratic stories. Where we all just vote on what, what's right and wrong. See, it's a joke, kind of, but literally none of my kids' favorite stories are democratic. Are any of your favorite stories democratic? Because I was going into my head and I was trying to find them and I couldn't find them. All of my favorite stories as a child and even now, currently, all involve kings. How many of your favorite stories as a child were democratic? Probably very few of them. Most of them were all ruled by kings and queens. I, I enlisted a few. King Arthur, right? Robin Hood, Lord of the Rings. Narnia, right? Beowulf. Almost all of the great stories of old involve kings and queens. Now, this isn't anything new. The Bible actually accounts for this kind of phenomenon, this ache that we have for kings. In the Old Testament, it shows us that God's people wanted to be ruled by a king. They didn't want to just go to God. They wanted to be ruled by a king. They had an ache for a king. They wanted a man to rule them. So much so that they begged God to give them a king. And this guy, right? They, you want a king? God finally said, no. He said, no, no, no. You want a king? Fine, I'll give you a king who you want. Now, who do we want as king? Right? The people of the Old Testament look around and they look to this guy named Saul. And he is a bad mamma jamma, right? Tall, handsome, strong. He's a warrior. He was a... The, he was a king among men already. He was a kingly man. But what happened? Now, let me just, first off, let me account for something. In the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, the whole narrative of the Bible is that things were once perfect. Things were once excellent, right? No sin, no pain, no harm, no fighting, no war in the world, right? Things were perfect. And then this thing happens in Genesis 3 where Satan enters the garden and he tempts man and, women, man and woman to rebel from God. And once they rebel from God, they're cursed. And not just them, but all of creation is cursed. And they're cursed. And it, that sin enters the world and they're cursed from now on. All right? And God promises, one day I'm going to redeem you. One day I'm going to fix things. One day I'm going to make everything right. But from this moment on, 
Adam and Eve, you've heard the story. Adam and Eve on, human beings have this sinful nature now. They've been marred. They've been wounded. They've been bent towards themselves and away from God. They've rebelled. Okay? So this sinful nature at work in mankind ever since the fall. Okay? So the people in the Old Testament say, we want a king. We want a man to rule us. Who? This guy looks awesome. Let's put him up there. Right? So they put Saul as king. And what happens? Before long, jealousy starts to rot his heart. Before long, he, he starts doing things he shouldn't do. He goes to battle when he shouldn't go to battle. He disregards the, the word of the Lord. He acts like he's the prophet. He takes the prophet's place and does things he's not supposed to do. Then God says, I've rejected you. You've, you've went bad, right? Like it's kind of like a piece of fruit. I've been meditating on this actually this week, this piece of fruit. I've been thinking in the new creation in, in Eden, you could just sit a fruit, a piece of fruit on your calendar. You could probably eat that a week later, two weeks later, never go bad, Right? But because of the fall, fruit spoils, right? Because of the fall, human beings spoil. So what happens to Saul? He's good, he's good, he's good. He ripens, he goes bad. So like all the great stories of kings and kingdoms, and if you look, if you really trace literal kings and kingdoms, you see this everywhere. Every king and every kingdom has toppled in upon itself. It's why almost every nation, not every, but many nations are democratic because we're rotten on the inside. So what happens in the story is Saul gets removed by God. God says, I take my anointing from him. I'm going to anoint this little shepherd boy named David. We all love David, right? And then Saul goes crazy trying to kill him, throwing spears at him, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But God exalts David. And what happens with David? Right? The bad king gets replaced by a good king. And what happens to this good king, David? What happened? He was good. He was good. He was good. He goes bad. Right? He ripens. He goes bad. He ripens. He spoils. He goes bad. He starts numbering the kingdom when he's not supposed to. I want to know how big are we? How successful are we? How great is our dynasty that we're creating right now? That's where it starts. Then one day he's supposed to be out at battle. Looks over and he sees Bathsheba. She was a good looking lady, right? She's bathing on a rooftop. Beauty kills, right? This longing side. He steals this other man's wife, has adultery. He ends up murdering her or having her husband killed. He gets judged by it. Like David Up, 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 great king, great king, great king. Things go bad. Kingdom is destroyed. So Israel, the people of the Old Testament, had this ache for a king. But because of the fall, their ache, right, their ache for a king, it always went badly. It always ended badly. Now listen to um, Tim Keller. Christians know... And the Bible's, Bible knows democracy is medicine, not food. You can't live on medicine. It's medicine. We have to have democracy because human beings are so sinful that none of us really are fit to rule. But we need a king. We were built for a king. The reason for the old myths, the reason for the new myths, all the superhero myths um, are just new myths about kings. 
The reason we adore kings and we create them is because there is a memory trace in the human race. There is a memory trace in you and me of a great king. An ancient king, one who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. So his power and wisdom and compassion and glory were like the sun shining in full strength. We know we were built to submit to that king. We were built to give ourselves to that king. We were built to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. See, democracy, Keller says, is medicine, not food. Democracy is the prescription to Genesis 3, right? It's the, because we're sinful, we need to be governed in this way. We need democracy because kings are sinful and they go bad. But even in a democracy, we still ache for a king. This is why in a nation like ours, we just create our own kings, and if we don't have kings, we, all, we buy all these tabloid magazines about what? Royal babies. Guess what? The, the baby is just like any other baby. You could put royal in front of it. It doesn't mean anything. It's a baby. It's messing in its drawers and doing what every other baby does. Crying and keeping the parents up at night. Probably not that. Keeping the nursemaid up at night. Right? But we create these kings, movie stars. Athletes, musicians, see, we still want to put ourselves under some king, be it Floyd Mayweather or Kim Kardashian. We ache for kings to show us how to live. What I want you to see this morning is that the people of Israel would read Psalm 72 and pray to God when new kings were being placed on the throne. God, make him just, make him right, make him long to heal the oppression of the poor, make him bring um, up or remove the oppression of the needy. God, make him that kind of king. But the depressing truth is that this was never really fulfilled. These aspirations and longings for a good king never really came to fruition. Kings were men. Men are sinners and sinners ruin kingdoms. Same is true for our king. Barak was going to heal our nation. He was going to change everything and fix everything. He was the king of hope. And here we are two terms later and nothing has changed. The country is just as divided, just as separated, just as hopeless as when he began his reign. And the next president will make similar promises, Republican or Democrat. And when he leaves office, we will be filled with the same ache. Right? These men just can't be the king that we all want. They're not going to bring the freedom that we expect. They're not going to bring the righteousness and the justice and the reign that we all desire. They can't do it. They're men. They're sinners. They're broken. They're bent. They go bad. But what can help us and what we need to know as we read and as we study this uh, royal psalm is that it's not just a royal psalm. See, this is also called a messianic psalm. See, inside and under this psalm is actually the ache for the Messiah, the true king, the perfect king, the king above all kings, the one who would crush the ultimate oppressor and bring ultimate deliverance to the poor and to the needy. And if we read this psalm carefully, we can see this ache for the true king. Look at verse 5. 
May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout what? All generations. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Throughout all generations, we know that no earthly king is going to reign through all generations. Keep reading. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water what? The earth. He wants this to be like a universal rain. So first, throughout generations, it's an eternal rain. Now it's like rain that falls on the earth. Now it's a universal, a world, a worldwide rain. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Till what? Till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him. And I love this line. May his enemies lick the dust. (laughs) That's just bad. See, this is revealing that the people had aspirations, not just for a good, you know, Solomon to reign rightly, but they had unrealistic expectations for a human king, right? Like they had something longing underneath that. We know that you're, you're a good, you could be a good king. You could be a good president. You could rule us, you know, like any great sinner maybe, but we have something underneath that that's unfulfilled. We want this to be an eternal reign that goes on and on. We want your reign to be all around the world. We want you to be not just sometimes justice and kind of just. We want you to be eternally and perfectly just and perfectly righteous. We've asked God above to give you his righteousness and his justice. See, this is an ache for the Messiah. The people are praying for a universal and eternal king who would... Bring peace and righteousness, not just to their corner of the world, but to all of creation. So, this psalm is talking about the people's desire for Solomon to be a good king, but it's also revealing a deeper ache. A deep ache for the one and only true king of kings. And that, my friend, is Jesus. And what... And that's what Tim Keller was talking about when he said that we have, I love this line, Keller's so brilliant. We have a memory trace. We have a memory trace deep in the human race, deep in the human heart of a great king that once ruled us. It's like deja vu, right? We have this internal longing. There's this internal desire for a good and true king because at one time in a land far, far away, we were ruled by a good and true king. We were built by that good king and we were made to worship that good king. And we will ache, listen right here, we will ache for little kings and little queens to rule us until we rest under the reign of the one and true king. Why do we long for movie stars and rock gods to, to worship? Why do we long for them to tell us how to live and tell us what success looks like and tell us what a meaningful life looks like? Why do we long for them? Because we have removed the true king from our lives, so we worship little kings and queens. And the truth is, if we don't submit ourselves to Jesus and to Jesus' kingdom and to Jesus' reign, we will be ruled by lesser kings. So you might be asking, well, what, what makes Jesus a better king? I think it's interesting that in Psalm 72, the people don't pray for an arrogant, self-seeking billionaire like Tony Stark. Right? They don't pray for a brilliantly gifted and stunningly beautiful supermodel to save them. Right? 
God, we want someone tall, dark, and handsome. Right? Well, that was inappropriate. That thought I just had that was going to be said, but I won't say that one. So just let you know. Right? They're not longing for what we aspire to. They have deeper longings. They pray for a king who would have pity on the weak and needy. They obviously saw themselves as weak and needy. There was an ache for a king who could have pity and they could associate with the poor. One who could deliver them while not belittling them. They wanted a humble king who understood them. A king who was all powerful, but who could somehow resonate with and pity the poor without looking down on them. And what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus, Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the true king. In Luke 4, when he takes the place in the temple, he says, I have come. Like this Today, the scripture has been fulfilled. I am the anointed one. I'm the one who comes to bring deliverance to those who are in bondage. I'm the one who comes to heal the sick and to, to mend the brokenhearted. When Jesus stands up in the temple and says, I am the true king. I am the Messiah. See, Jesus was born of a virgin. What does that mean? Why does that even, why do we sing about that? Why does it matter? Listen, He was born of a virgin. That means he's without the effects of Genesis 3. That Genesis 3 moment that tainted us, that bent us, that that ruined all kings and ruined all men, that doesn't affect Jesus. Jesus doesn't have man as his father. He has God as his father. So he's born as a virgin without the, the bent and the human propensity, without that original sin dwelling in his blood. So therefore, Jesus never goes bad. He never ripens and goes bad. He never gets proud. That he's humble and he lives with the poor and the powerless. That's his first advent. That's when Christ came the first time. He could have came as Tony Stark, right? A billionaire genius, but he didn't. He could have came as the, into the most powerful royal line of, in all history that was still ruling and reigning. He kind of did come through the royal line, no. But he could have came as the most powerful king. He didn't. He came as a baby. Born in a stable, surrounded by livestock. Born to an uneducated teenage mother and a blue-collar, nail-banging stepdad. This is how God enters the human story. See, Jesus is that humble king that Psalm 72 is longing for and they're they're aching for. Someone who gets the poor, someone who resonates with them, somebody who understands them. Jesus spent 30 years of his 33 years on this earth, 30 out of 33 as a poor man, right? Carpenter's son. He completely embraced obscurity, unknown. He knows what it's like. He knows the plight of the poor. But we also see that the people didn't just want a humble king, right? They wanted an all-powerful, omnipotent king. 
One who will rule us with righteousness and justice until the moon is no more. And again, Jesus is that omnipotent king. See, Jesus' first advent shows us his humility, but his second advent will show us his omnipotence. When Christ comes back, he will crush all of his oppressors and he will consummate the kingdom that he, that he started, that he inaugurated on his resurrection, his ascension. He will consummate that kingdom and he will reign for eternity. Now, I know we don't like to talk about this, but there's hundreds of scriptures throughout the Bible that talk about Christ's second coming and what he's going to do with rebels when he gets here. One scripture says the blood is going to be up to a horse's bridle. Ooh, that's offensive. I'm going to tell you, Jesus is what our hearts are longing for. They are what we're aching for. That we were created to have a king, a humble king, and an omnipotent king. That's why we love the king stories. That's why we ache for superheroes and movie stars and rock gods and kings to rule us. Democracy is medicine, but we were made to be ruled by a monarchy. Jesus Christ, the God King, is what our hearts are longing for. But hold on. What if that Genesis 3 moment, right, like Genesis 3 problem, that all the earthly kings have, that one that causes them to ripen and then go bad. What if that affects us too? What if right now that's affecting you? You might not even know it, that it's affecting your thoughts. It's affecting your desires in your heart. It's affecting your emotions. It's affecting your cravings. You ever feel like your cravings are out of control? Only when mama makes that banana pudding, right? Listen, if that Genesis 3 moment, if that Genesis 3 problem, if that actually affects us too, that means it even affects the ache that we have for a good king. It affects our desires. It means we're bad, just like kings. We have this thing inside of us that at any moment can take our life off the rails, right? Any moment it can blow up our life. How, how do guys that look like they have everything can destroy it all in a moment? Genesis 3 problem. Sin inside. That we're not just capable of doing bad things, but we're actually bad and crooked in our nature. What I'm saying is that Genesis 3 even affects our ache for a king. I'm going to ask you this. Do you really When I say that, like, first off, we want a humble, we want a righteous, we want a just king. We want that kind of guy to rule us. Most of us would go, yes, we do. So you're saying you want a holy king. Whoa. I didn't say the H word. I said just and right and good. So I'm going to ask you, if Genesis 3 affects us, do, we, do you think we really want a just and righteous and holy king? Or would we rather have, honestly, a king that just looks the other way and allows us to do as we please? I'm going to say that 
if Genesis 3 is real, and we really have a Genesis 3 problem that affects us too, that we probably want not a true king, not a righteous king, not a just king, not a holy king. We probably, now, we want a king that just lets us be. We want to be king. We want to be our own kings. We want to rule ourselves and make our own decisions. See, Let me read this quote. A friend sent me last week or so by a guy named Aldous Huxley. Um, he wrote some famous books. I won't go into that right now. Um, but he becomes, he's an atheist and uh, secular humanist, really. That's what he says. I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning. So consequently, I assumed it had none. And I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. See, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. Listen, for myself... The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Now, what does that mean? Let me put it in layman's terms. Huxley's in college and he looks around and he says, I want to have sex and I want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. So therefore, there cannot be a king that tells me no. So I don't want there to be a God. So I will act like there is no God. I will build my whole worldview around the fact that there is no God. Why? Because I want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. That's why. I want to do what I want to do, so therefore there is no God. Now this is interesting because C.S. Lewis kind of builds upon some of this philosophy and he takes a guy who, who was influential on him, that George MacDonald, and he says this, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. The one principle of hell is this. I am my own. Lewis said there's, there's two ways to go. You can say to God, thy will be done. Or God says to you, thy will be done. See, hell is people getting what they want. They want to be their own king. They want to be their own God. They want to rule their own way. God says, go have it. And you're away from his presence. And in his presence is holiness and glory and justice and righteousness and love and meaningfulness. And away from him is utter darkness. So hell is people getting what they want. They don't want anything to do with God. That's what hell is. One principle of hell is I am not my own. See, I think we ache for a king. We have this desire for a king. We have this innate desire to be ruled by a king. But look what we did to Jesus. See, the humble, righteous, poor loving king came to this earth. And what did the human race do to him? How did we treat the king that we all ache for, the righteous and just king? How did we treat him? The one who would, who would know the poor and live amongst them and know them and bring, a, bring deliverance to them. How did we treat that king? We beat him. We crushed him. We spit on him. We mocked him as a fool. We nailed the humble king to a Roman cross and we shoved a spear into his side. And friends, that's our Genesis 3 moment. That's where we see it. 
is where we see our sin. The perfect and holy king came to rescue us and we killed him. We esteemed him not, Isaiah 53 said. We didn't see anything saw-like about him. We looked at him and went, ah, he's weak, he's small, he's not really good looking. I don't like this guy. He's so un-Tony Stark-like, I don't like him, let's kill him. You might say, oh, oh my, Justin, I didn't do that. That was the Jews, that was the Romans, that was, you know, ancient civilization. They were just so uncivilized. I'm not violent or antagonistic towards Jesus. I like Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy, right? I like him. Listen, Jesus is a king. How do we react to his rule? The thing about kings is there's there's really only two ways to live with them. You submit to them, honor them, obey them, or you rebel from them. There is no middle ground. There is no, I want a king, but I want to do it my way. Right? We're about to pay our taxes. Try that with the IRS. I love what you guys are doing. I really do. But I just want to opt out. Either you're paying your taxes or you're a criminal. You can disagree with the rules all you want. It doesn't matter. If you go off the grid and you're, you're in open rebellion and you're liable for persecution... You can't come before the, the, the judge, you know, whatever judge they bring, and you can say, you know what, I just, I disagree with them. I disagree with those rules. I am in a democracy. It doesn't work. There's only two, you're in, either in compliance or you're in open rebellion. That's the way it is with kings. It's their way or judgment. Now, most people in this room and most people in our city and most people in our country don't have a problem with God. They would say they believe in God. Most of them don't have a problem with the humble and lowly Jesus in a manger or on the cross either. That's nice. That's why you have, you know, it doesn't matter. You can have Madonna to whoever else wearing crosses around their neck. They they like that. It's not offensive to them. What we have a problem with in this room, in our hearts, in our city, in our nation, what we have a problem with is the true God of the Bible. We have a problem with King Jesus. We don't want to submit to him. We want to keep him in a manger or keep him in a cross. But don't show me the glorified Jesus. Don't show me at the right hand of God. I don't want to think about what's going to happen when he comes back the second time. I like humble, lowly Jesus. I don't want to submit myself to the king of all the universe. Now you say, well, Jesus, I I like him. He, he makes sim- he makes simple he he gives us simple things to follow some simple things 
How about this? Because God was so generous that he gave his only son the choice possession of heaven, like God gave himself and his son. He bankrupt heaven to send Jesus to this earth. He gave us that freely. He gives us our salvation at the complete cost and expense of himself. He pays it for us freely. And then he says, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to bless you wherever you are. Whether you're a carpenter or a CEO or a lawyer or a housewife, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to meet your needs. I'm going to funnel resources to you. And I'm going to ask that you are generous with those resources and you give 10% back to, for the propagation of the gospel so the gospel can keep moving forward and churches can be planted. I should give 10% back to, back to me. Like, remember, I paid for all salvation. I gave my one and only son. I'm taking care of you. I'm funneling this resources to you. Now, 10% back so we can move the gospel forward. Well, that's legalism. Well, I don't, well, it's Christmas time. Well, 10%, well, that's the Old Testament, so let's talk about New Testament. And let's just... We're rebelling from his rule. Well, how about this? He creates man and woman. He says, it's not good that man be alone. I'm going to create a woman for him. The two come together in the first ceremony and they walk down the aisle and God says, the two come together and the two become, the two shall become one. And he says this in the new Testament, he says, this is pointing to something that happens with Jesus in the church. There's a deeper meaning to marriage. There's a deeper meaning to your sexuality that it points to something need that you need completing and something where Jesus and the church are coming together in some kind of union There's a gospel meaning to marriage. And we say, no, throw away that. I want to marry whoever I want. We say, well, no, we're just, you know, we're fighting over if homosexuals can get married right now. Down the line, all kind of crazy things are coming. And you think it's crazy. A lady in India just married a, a frog. Google it. She married a frog. Well, now this was probably her... You know, her husband from far back, and he's been reincarnated as this frog, but she married a frog. Craziness. Craziness. When God says, listen, how do you know if you're rejecting God as king? How do you know if you're rejecting Jesus as king? He can't tell you no. He can't say, I created sex for this purpose and this purpose only. You say, well, no, I want to do it my way. You don't have a king. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't have a king, you don't have a savior. You don't get one or the other. You can treat Jesus like he's a sweet little babe in the manger. But if you don't have a king, you do not have a savior. He, he's one. You can't separate him. I like the sweet side. I don't like the, the just side. I don't want the holy side. I don't want the ruling all of creation side. I want the sweet little babe in the manger that takes care of my sin, removes my guilt so I can go out and use my sexuality in whatever way I want to. I want to hurt whoever I want to be able to hurt and no judgment com- or condemnation comes my way. And by the way, I'm just going to connect these two points. You realize the way we use our sexuality is also what's causing the poor among us many times. You want to know who the poorest people in our country are? Single mothers. 
Where do single mothers come from? Men who want to do what they want to do with their penises. Men who want to reject the true king. So they go out and they sleep around and they do, and women too, they do what they want to do. And guess who becomes the most impoverished in our country? Single moms. Whoa, it's connected. Social issues are connected to morality and to the God of the Bible and to submission to the king. We don't want a king who makes demands. Can I ask you, how can you have a king? How can you have a king who rules with justice and righteousness if he can't say no to you? If the God you say you believe in never crosses your will and he never upsets you or he never tells you no, you don't have a king, you're the king. And you're not the true king and you know it, you're not even a good king. I can't even be the king of my home. I'm awful at that. But there's this other way. There's another way that I think we hate the king and we rebel from the king. See, well, let me start here. Flannery O'Connor, if you know her, she was an American writer who went to the University of Iowa. She wrote a couple of great books, um, a couple of them that sit on my nightstand that I've been reading for quite some time now. And her novel, Wise Blood, listen to this. She says this about one of the main characters who had grown up in a religious home. Okay, listen, listen to what she says to him about him. She says this, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What? See, there's two ways to be your own king. You can say, I'm my own. I am king. I don't need or want any other king. I want to be able to do what I want, when I want. And you take the path of Huxley, right? You want to be immoral, so you reject the king. You want to define your sexuality, so you reject the king. You want to do what you want to do with your money, so you reject the king. But the other way we reject the king is a lot more subtle. This way actually gets the approval of your parents, And even in many churches, it gets their approval. And this is what they teach that look, be a good person, be moral. And you in your morality and you're striving for excellence and you're striving to be better and you're striving to be strong. You say to Jesus, I don't need you. Look at me. I'm moral. I'm good. Look at my behavior. I don't need Jesus. Jesus is for the weak. I'm strong. Jesus is for the uneducated. I'm educated. Jesus is for addicts. I'm clean. And O'Connor, she just nails this. She said there was already this deep, dark, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. See, so you stay away from the big sins because you don't want to come to Jesus and submit to him and say, I'm poor and I'm needy and I'm broken and I need your rule and I need your righteousness and I need your grace in my life. So you avoid Jesus with your morality. Both are ways to avoid the king. 
both are reasons for killing the king. See, we would do the same thing if Jesus was here today. The same, we would kill him. We would use probably a different instrumentation, but we would do it. His life is too convicting to us. His life is too challenging. His rule and reign is too intrusive for us. You're saying, I don't want you, Jesus. Your death wasn't for me. I didn't need it. I want to do it my own way. And that's rebelling from the true king. And listen to this. At Jesus' second advent, when Christ comes back, when he returns from heaven to consummate his kingdom on this earth, he's bringing justice with him. And he will crush his opposition. They will lick the dust, Psalm 72 says. Everyone who rebels against his kingdom will be crushed, good or bad. Do you hear that? Please don't hear me saying Jesus is coming back to crush all the liberals or something. Jesus is coming to crush all the bad people, all the violent people, all all the criminals. Don't hear me saying that. Jesus is coming to crush everyone who rejects his kingly reign. Everyone, moral or immoral, good or bad, anyone who looks to Jesus and says, I don't want it and I don't need it, I want to be my own. Morality or immorality, doesn't matter. That's rebelling, that's opposing the king. Christ will annihilate him. And listen, you're like, whoa, and this is awesome. This might be the first You've heard the statement of fire and brimstone. This might be the actual first sermon you've ever heard that kind of sounds like that. But it's reality. Now listen, here's the good news. Where is the, where is the safe place from this wrath? And you, first off, you might, why? I don't want a wrathful God. You can't have a just God without a wrathful God. He's got to destroy all the oppressors. If you got one oppressor in the kingdom, you don't have a righteous kingdom. You got a kingdom that still has sin in it. Still have rebellion. Still, still has someone who would steal and hurt and rape and murder and kill and rebel. You still have that one person there. God is setting up a new kingdom without any reference to that. All darkness, all sin will be gone. So he has to bring justice. In that day, the only safe place from his wrath, hear me, the only safe place from his wrath will be in his kingdom and under his rule. The same is true today. That Jesus is a shield for all those who trust in him. A shield from what? A shield from the wrath of God. That we deserve wrath because of our rebellion and because of our sin. But we get in, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we're given grace by God and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes a shield for us from the wrath of God. 
That he is the king who rules in righteousness and justice, but he's also the king who has absorbed the wrath of God in himself on the cross. See, Jesus was absorbing the wrath of God when he was on the cross. All of the wrath aimed at our sin was poured out on Jesus and he took it all. How do you get safe from that, from the wrath of God? How do you get safe from that coming judgment that's coming in the second advent? You run to Jesus for grace. Let us run to him this morning as sinners in need of grace. Let us draw near to him and find shelter under his rule and reign that Jesus is the king that our hearts are longing for, a king who loves us, a king who has associated with the lowly and has felt our temptations. Jesus is a king who was still without sin, yet gave up his life to save us. Every story of every age of good kings finds their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Will you say, I'm my own, I want to do it my way? Or will you say, I am his and he is mine? I pray that you would turn. This is me. This is me too. I pray that this time now, in this season of Advent, we would turn from being our own kings and queens. We would turn from ruling our own life and creating our own morality and making our own rules. And we would turn to the true king this morning. The one who lived the life that we can't live. The one who's the shield from the wrath of God. The one who brings us into the family of God. The one who's died for us and his blood covers us. And he offers us his right standing with the father. All by grace. I pray that we believe that this morning. And as we come to the table. Let us come this morning. Let us eat his food. Let us drink his wine. Let us celebrate our great king, King Jesus. Because the king that we all are longing for, our ultimate king, is on the throne. And one day, soon and very soon, he comes back again to consummate that kingdom. And death will be no more. And pain will be no more. And tears of loss will be no more. Jesus, I thank you that All the darkness, all the sin, all the wrath, all the anger, all the injustice, you didn't just blow it away. You didn't just say, let's just forget about it. You said, put it on me. And all of our rebellion, every one of your saints, everyone in your bride, everyone in your church that the father gave you, you took our sin in yourself. You took our wrath and our rebellion in yourself and you just exploded it. You just imploded it. You took it in and you paid the ultimate price for it to wash it clean, to forgive us, to give us grace. And father, may that rock our hearts this morning. May it change us. 
right now, instantaneously. May we be filled with hope and joy and gratitude for what you have done for us. And God, may you enable your saints this morning to turn from their own rule, to turn from being their own kings and queens through the power of your Holy Spirit and let us embrace you as our king, as our savior king. We look forward to your coming. We look forward with anticipation to your rule and to your reign in a world that's completely clean from sin. What will it be like? We long for the day. We say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we take this bread and this wine, this sacrament this morning, may you communicate that deeply to our hearts. That the king we all are longing for, that king is reigning now in heaven and soon and very soon you'll be reigning on this earth. You deserve all honor and all glory. Our humble, omnipotent Savior King, Jesus. Amen.